Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Its mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Hello and welcome to episode 105 of the Observer's Notebook Podcast, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I'm Tim Robertson, the host of the podcast and also the coordinator of the training program within the ALPO. Thank you for downloading and listening. The Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomena and publishes detailed reports concerning these bodies in its quarterly publication, The Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers, also known as The Strolling Astronomer. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it alive. If you enjoy what you hear on the podcast, you can donate to it via Patreon by giving as little as $1 a month. If you feel even more generous, for $5, you receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For a monthly donation of $10, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook. And for $35 a month, you receive producer credits and a one-year's membership to the ALPO. You're going to help us out by going to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, slash Observer's Notebook. And if you'd like to join the ALPO, membership begins at only $18 a year. You can, f- you can find out more at alpo-astronomy.org and we are also on the Facebook just search for ALPO Astronomy and yes this here podcast has a Facebook page as well just search for Observer's Notebook and if you do enjoy what you hear in the podcast please subscribe that way you'll never miss another episode of the podcast and now episode 105 with Carl Hergenrather this podcast is actually recorded during our virtual ALPO conference held at the beginning of October 2020. But it was a very interesting talk, and uh, Carl talked about the uh, comets that were observed during 2020, and also the latest on his uh, NASA project, OSIRIS-REx. And this was recorded just a few weeks prior to the TAG event that just took place as well. So I hope you enjoy it. And also, the slides that he is referring to are available in the show notes for download. So be sure to check out the the download area in the show notes. And now, episode 105 with Carl Hergenrother. Is Carl Hergenrother. Carl's a Comet Section Coordinator and Associate Director of the ALPO. He's been on again, off again, but mostly on again, a member of the ALPO since his high school days in the early 90s um, in northern New Jersey. He has a BS in atmospheric sciences from the University of Arizona. Rather than entering the field of meteorology, he became an observational astronomer at the University of Arizona's Lunar and Planetary Lab, where he studied comets, asteroids, with an occasional foray into observational supernova, gamma ray bursts, and exoplanets. His astronomical career started as a part of the photographic Bigelow Sky Survey, which focused on the discovery of asteroids at high ecliptic latitudes. By the late uh, 1990s, the survey entered its digital digital age to become the Catalina Sky Survey, one of the most productive near-Earth asteroid surveys in history. And during his, t- during his time at the two surveys, he discovered four comets, uh, 1966 R1, 1986 P, 
I'm sorry, 196, 168p Hergenrather, 175p Hergenrather, and 330p Catalina, and numerous asteroids. Currently, he's a member of the Observational Planning and Science Team at NASA's OSIRIS REx. Uh, maybe if we nudge him to tell us what's going on there right now, it's a pretty exciting time uh, to acquire samples of the carbonous near-Earth asteroid Bennu. As a lead OSIRIS X astronomy working group, he was responsible for leading the effort to select and remotely characterize Bennu, search for hazards near Bennu, satellites, and other dust activity, and conduct photomet- photometric observations to coordinate the Target Asteroids Citizens Science Project. And the Alpo Meteorite Section Coordinator, Dolores Hill worked with her. Uh, it was his work that led to the discovery that the surface of Bennu is routinely, routinely ejecting small millimeter to centimeter sized particles into the space. As Osiris Rex time, Bennu comes to an end. He is part of the new venture as a chief scientist for the Ascending Node Technologies LLC, a small business specializing in spacecraft planning and op- operations software. Carl enjoys backpacking. Uh, I'm sorry, backpacking. <laughs> Backyard observing, where his go-to equipment is a pair of Vixen 30 by 125 binoculars. Uh, since observing Halley's back in 1985, Carl has visually observed 127 different comet apparitions. He's never gotten around to counting up how many comets he's imaged or photographed, but it's a lot. Uh, in addition to comets, Carl enjoys observing meteor showers and galactic novae. Asteroid 3099, Hergenrather, was named after Carl in recognition for his work in the Bigelow Sky Survey. And Carl has an asteroid family, his wife, uh, 7959, uh, Elise Sherry, and sons, 8109, Daniel William, and 8711, Luke Ezer, Luke, Luke Asher. Uh, wow, that's very cool. All right. And with that, uh, I want to introduce uh, Carl. Thanks. Yeah, I wasn't expecting you to read the whole thing. Hey, what the <laughs> heck, you know, takes your time. <laughs> yep. So I was originally going to give two talks, but I ended up just giving one. And my other talk was going to go a little bit into what I've been doing on OSIRIS-REx, and in particular, the sort of OSIRIS-REx observations that do have some connection to amateur observations, or at least backyard astronomy observations. So as uh, Tim said, kind of poked me a little bit on OSIRIS-REx, we are getting really close to the end of our time at asteroid Bennu. Uh, Bennu is a carbonaceous near-Earth asteroid. It's about half kilometer across. And the plan is to collect samples from the surface of this asteroid and return them to Earth in 2023. And the reason why we're going to a carbonaceous asteroid is because carbonaceous asteroids during their formation in the early days of the solar system never were sufficiently heated that you actually saw a differentiation within the body. You know, like where you have planets where the planet, like the Earth will melt, mostly due to various radioactive isotopes that heat up the planet the heavy stuff sinks to the core, and that's where you why you have your iron-nickel core. The lighter stuff floats to the surface, which is where your, your crust is. For carbonaceous bodies, that never happened. So the thinking, or at least the conventional wisdom, is that these are bodies that are pristine, and that the material that are on their surfaces now are very similar to the original building blocks of the solar system. and might even be similar to the objects that provided organics and water to an early Earth. So right now we are, I think, 18 days away from our first sample collection attempt where we're going to drop down to the surface and we don't really land on the asteroid so much as we almost like bungee 
or I guess you could say almost pogo stick off the asteroid, where we have an arm that extends out, touches the surface, the rest of the spacecraft continues to fall on the arm, almost like a shock absorber, and then we whoop, we kind of pogo stick off. And we can do that collection attempt three times. Um, that, the, how we actually collect the sample is that we have gas canisters that then blow inert nitrogen into the surface that you know mobilizes the surface material. It gets caught by, and I'm not kidding, it's our sample collection mechanism is based on the old round air filters that used to drop in and you know, screw down. That's what it's actually based on. So we mobilize the material, it gets caught by the air filter, we pogo stick off. And then hopefully if that's successful in 18 days, we will then end up leaving the asteroid Bennu and returning to Earth in 2023. As Tim mentioned, I was part of what we called the astronomy observations of asteroid Bennu. And when we were at the asteroid, that meant the very first observations when the asteroid was still a point source. We can kind of do point source photometry. And so what I was doing is I was looking for potential satellites or any satellite that might be in orbit, looking for cometary activity. Bennu is a B-type asteroid, and B-type asteroids, at least in the main belt, can act like comets. Phaethon's a B-type asteroid. Wilson-Harrington's a B-type asteroid. Those were both observed, or at least due to Phaethon's meteor shower, was a comet in the past. Els Pizarro, a lot of these main belt comets are B-type asteroids. So we looked for any kind of cometary outgassing didn't see anything. I was actually in the midst of writing my paper to Nature Communication saying, and it's always great to write a paper that's full of null results. That's like the hardest thing you can actually do. Try to get people excited about something you didn't see. And it just so happened the morning I made my presentation to the science team. And I'm kind of a procrastinator, as Ken knows for the journal and even Tim for you know the podcast. I kind of wait till last minute. So I was up all night working on my draft of my paper. And that morning in the science team meeting, I was looking for something to do that was easy on the brain since I hadn't slept. So I started blinking through navigation images and all of a sudden noticed that there was this star cluster that was right off the northern limb of the asteroid. Now the navigation images cover about 30 by 40 degrees of sky. So a pretty good chunk of real estate, only go down to six, seventh magnitude. So you, you, you very quickly, you recognize all the star patterns because it's what you see in your backyard. And then notice that there is this star cluster that I did not recognize. So first thinking going, oh, maybe it's something from the Southern Hemisphere. And I live in Tucson, but I can't see anything south of you know, minus 45 degrees. But at the same time, I've been watching this for a few weeks and didn't recognize that star cluster. And then looked at the RA and deck of that field and said, whoa, this is in the middle of Hydra. No star cluster looks like that in Hydra. So I pulled up Stellarium, fired up Stellarium and looked at the image again and goes, those stars aren't stars. They're not supposed to be there. And I happened to be sitting next to Dolores Hill, who's our meteorite, meteorite uh, coordinator at the Alpo and kind of nudged her and says, does this look like what I think it looks like? And when I stretched the contrast of the image very quickly, you started seeing that in addition to those stars, trailed objects emanating from a single point on the surface. And so that was the first of these, what we call ejection events, where there are just sometimes thousands of small millimeter, centimeter sized particles being shot off the surface of the asteroid. 
And while we're not 100% sure what's causing them, most likely it's a combination of what we call thermal fracturing. Bennu, of course, doesn't have an atmosphere. It rotates every four hours and it's pretty dark. So you've got these boulders on the surface that are heating up and cooling off, you know, on the order of hours. And so you can get um, fractures forming, basically weaknesses in the rock, and they'll crack and it'll shed material. It's possible these cracking events are energetic enough to throw material off. What actually might be more likely to be happening is these cracking events are distributing small, fine material around the asteroid, and then it's micrometeoroid bombardment hitting the surface directly. Again, there's no atmosphere, so there's nothing stopping the meteoroids. They're hitting the surface and throwing off this material. And so I think that's what we're seeing what's going on. And it is highly likely that these sort of events are occurring on every asteroid and comet that's out there. But it is kind of amazing that the discovery wasn't made based on software, based on, you know, algorithms. It was made because I, and it could have been anyone, eventually looking at the images, it all becomes public in six months, looking at an image and going, those stars don't belong in that part of the sky. So there's still a lot of discoveries that can be made just using kind of your backyard knowledge. And to kind of dovetail a little bit into what uh, Richard was just presenting and talking about, we were originally going to use standard stars for our references, for our photometric references. As it turned out, and this happens quite often, and you know, even professionals spending $30 million on cameras for a billion-dollar spacecraft mission make simple mistakes. Like if your fill factor isn't one, you have gaps between your pixels, you better make sure your stars are defocused somewhat so they cover multiple pixels. Well, what happened was that was the plan. And then at some point during installation on the spacecraft, maybe during launch, the instrument got hit a little bit and actually fell into finer focus. And so all of a sudden the star images were too focused. And as a result, we had really bad photometry because too many of these gaps were, were being a problem. So we actually ended up in one case using Jupiter. So we actually had to go back to some of Richard's papers and Anthony's papers and, you know, the, because here was a, you know, the closest thing we had to a extended object that we had observed. So that's my Osiris Rex digression. So let's kick off into comets here. So next slide. So the comet, the Alpo comet section goes back almost 60 years now. It was founded back in 1957 by then high school student, David Meisel. David's still active. He's the you know, head of the American Meteor Society that Bob and I work with quite often. And at the time, what really got the interest of the Alpo and comets was in the year 1957, there were two really bright comets, Aaron Rollin and Comet Murkosh. So that kind of kicked off interest in, in comets at the Alpo. And this section was really created to address the need for compiling visual, basically all observations on comets, which back in the 50s was something that no one had really taken control of yet. Currently, we still do that where we collect data, both visual, CCD, images themselves, just for seeing tails and dust distribution, as well as the actual brightness of comets. And always kind of poking people to start getting a little bit more into spectroscopy as well. The section publishes almost everything online, 
all the images and all the magnitude estimates are put online on the, uh, the page. And I also produce a, what I just call Alpo Comet News for the month, where I kind of do a rundown of all the comets that are visible, at least the bright comets that are visible, comets brighter than about 12th magnitude, with occasional discussion of some more interesting fainter comets. And I post, those go out directly to the Alpo mailing list, and I also post them at, on cloudy nights where I create my own little forum page and people can have discussions that go back and forth. So next slide. So the, the two major things that you'll find on the website is the image, first one is the image gallery. And as of a few weeks ago, we've got getting close to 6,000 images and sketches of over 500 comets. And you'll see if you actually visit the image gallery, it's broken down by, for long period comets, by the year the comet was discovered. So it's not necessarily the year the comet was at its best. Like for example, there was a nice comet this year called a C2017 T2 Panstars. Even though it was best in 2020, you'll find it in the 2017 folder because that was the year it was actually discovered. And even though I don't show it in this little snapshot, the periodic comets are just broken up by their number. So like 1 through 50, 51 through 100, and such. For the year 2020, calendar year 2020, up again until about a week or so ago, the section has received over 600 images, sketches, and spectra of 87 comets from 37, 37 different observers, though a small number of these images were actually kind of their older observations of comets that were taken you know, prior to 2020. So next slide. The magnitude database is the other major da uh, observation database you'll find on the uh, Alpo Comet section website. This is where I usually have people submit to me their brightnesses in any format, but I usually plot them up in the International Comet Quarterly format, just because most of the software, including my own, is designed to take that format. So it just makes life a lot easier when you actually do your analysis. And as of a few weeks ago, we're getting close to 10,000 magnitude measurements. We actually have more than 10,000, but I still have most of the old comets section archive and boxes right here underneath my desk. And I haven't scanned in everything yet, but at least the ones that are on the website, we're almost close to 10,000 magnitude measurements of over 300 comets. In 2020, we've got about 400 magnitude measurements of 22 comets from eight observers. And again, you can find links to all these databases on the website. So next. And a big shout out and thank you to our 2020 contributors. We had 41 different observers submit observations. A few of you are on this conference call. So shout out to everyone there. And next. Oh, back one. Back two. There we go. So around this time of the year, I usually start thinking about the comets for next year. And, you know, I'll produce a little write-up for the journal. I'll usually do a podcast, usually twice a year, with Tim. First time I'll talk about the comets for the upcoming year, and then kind of at the halfway mark, we'll kind of update things and talk about the comets for the second half of the year. And going into 2020, this was supposed to be a pretty boring year for comets. Um, there were only three objects that were expected to be brighter than about magnitude 10. Uh, Comet Enki, which comes around every three years. Unfortunately, this year was only observable from the Southern Hemisphere, at least when it was bright. There was Comet 88P Howell, which is a short period comet that seems to be getting brighter and brighter every year as it gets closer to the sun. And the Discover also works with me at Osiris-Rex, small world. And 
then there was C2017 T2 pan stars. So those were the only ones expected to get the eighth or ninth, tenth magnitude. But as it turns out, last few months of 2019, first few months of 2020, a whole slew of nice, low perihelion distance bright comets were discovered. And in fact, we've already seen nine comets get brighter than the 10th magnitude. Now, some of these made the news. Um, early on, there was a comet called C2019Y4 Atlas that was predicted to be the next great comet. You know, it was being called Comet of Our Generation, Comet of the Decade, whatever, in, in the press. And unfortunately, it kind of fell apart. And literally, it fell apart inbound. Again, to kind of point out how great it is to have so many backyard telescopes available, here was a comet that fell apart inbound about a few months before perihelion, when it was still very well placed for observation. Usually when comets disintegrate, they're close to the sun. Take Ison, for example. It was only degrees from the sun when it fell apart. You usually can't observe that from the ground. This year, <coughs> thanks to COVID-19 and all the shutdowns, there were almost no large professional telescopes active when Atlas was falling apart. So almost all the documentation of it with the exception of Hubble, and Hubble only observed it for about 20 minutes over a day or two. <coughs> Almost all the observations came from backyard telescopes, which was great. So following Atlas, there was Comet Swan, 2020 F8, <coughs> and I apologize as I start getting the coughs here, which was also predicted maybe not to be a great comet, but was gonna be a good third magnitude comet. And it unfortunately also fell apart didn't quite get so bright, and then fell apart at perihelion. So after, you know, being disappointed in back-to-back -back months by two comets, we had C2020F3 Neowise, a little runt of a comet, and you can go to the next page. <coughs> next slide. A little runt of a comet discovered by the Neowise spacecraft, which is a 16-inch uh, telescope, I believe, or maybe 24 inches something on that order, about half meter-ish telescope that is in low Earth orbit, that is, was really originally designed to map the whole sky in these various infrared bands. But after its coolant ran out and the camera warmed up, only a few bands in what we call the near-infrared, kind of two to four micron, were available. And the decision was made to reactivate the spacecraft and dedicate it to finding asteroids and comets. And because it's looking in the infrared, it preferentially is picking out the dark objects, i.e. the hot objects, that because they're dark are harder to see with the, the ground-based telescopes that are in more of the optical visual wavelengths. So they picked up this new comet back on March 27th of 2020 when it was about two AU from the sun. And like I said, it was only 16th magnitude. It looked like it was gonna be really faint. We just had two comets disintegrate. It looked like this one was probably gonna be more of the same. So next slide. So after discovery, it was obvious that the comet was gonna get very close to the sun with a perihelion in early July at about 0.3 AU. What wasn't obvious was whether or not this comet had been around before. Now, one of the, when comets disintegrate, it's usually because there are long period comets that have, are making their first approach around the sun. Now, Atlas that I talked about before kind of breaks that because it actually had been around before, but it was a smaller piece of a larger comet. Smaller chunks are also prone to falling apart. <clears throat> but for what we call dynamically new long period comets, comets that haven't been around the sun, or haven't been close to the sun 
They have a habit of being abnormally bright when far away because they have a bunch of volatile ices that are seeing heat for the first time. And so you get tricked into thinking that they're a more exciting object than they are. You can think Kahootek, Ison, Austin, any of your favorite disappointments. They're usually in the dynamically new long period comet bucket. As it turns out, Neowise is a dynamically old comet. It's been around before. Um, its previous perihelion was about 4,400 years ago. That's 2,400 BC. So maybe the ancient Egyptians and Sumerians saw this. And it'll be back again in 6,700 years. Of course, we know this now. But when you're watching this comet come inbound, it takes a few months to get a good enough orbit to actually figure out whether it's dynamically old or new. So you don't know this, in this case, until perihelion. So next slide. The comet was discovered in the Southern Hemisphere and was only observable from the Southern Hemisphere until about early June, and then it wasn't observable from the ground at all. It was just too close to the sun. Now, luckily, we've got a whole fleet of sun-watching spacecraft that are observing the sun with coronagraphs or observing the corona. One of them, you know, Pam, Pam just mentioned the, uh, the Parker Solar Probe. So we were watching the comet in these various solar observing spacecraft data and saw it getting brighter and brighter and brighter to the point where it's like, whoa, maybe we got a first magnitude comet here. And then on July 1st, which was two days before perihelion, we got the first sightings of the comet. Um, that morning, both myself and uh, Ray Brooks, who also lives in the Tucson area, picked up the comet at 11 degrees from the sun. I mean, it didn't look like much, but it was definitely there. <clears throat> and it was lucky because I was right before the monsoon kicked in and also before you know, we all had to suffer from the smoke that kind of destroyed backyard astronomy for, for a while there and still does in some states. And then Neowise very very quickly kind of you know moved out from the sun and got became a brighter and brighter object there in, in the morning sky in early July. By mid-month, it was passing north of the sun and was circumpolar and then entered the evening sky. And towards the end of July, unfortunately, that's when the smoke was really starting to kick in for a lot of us, it made its closest approach to the Earth at about 0.7 AU. So I'm going to try to speed up here. Next slide. This shows a few observations of the comet. Um, the first one there in the far upper left was an observation I made about two months before perihelion that didn't really show anything special. Then the image just to the right was actually a co-ad of a bunch of images from the SOHO spacecraft, <coughs> where the comet starts looking suspiciously like Im old images of Murkosh, you know, that, that comet that kicked off the, the Alpos comet section back in 57. Then the two that are on the, the right side there, You've got a nice sketch from ALPO member Mike Rosalina. And just to show how bright this comet was, even though it wasn't spectacular to big long tail, I mean, that's St. Peter's in, in Vatican City there that John Luca Massi took. And you can see the, the comet there, you know, rising over the, the dome of St. Peter's. And then probably the funnest observation I made when I was observing visually, and other people also kind of agreed, was just watching the tail rise. You know, before the actual head of the comet, you kind of get this little searchlight beam coming up. <clears throat> and I'd always heard stories of people saying this about West and Ikea Seiki. For the first time since I think 2004 is Bradfield, you got to see that again, this nice long bright tail. So next. There were some nice near nucleus features. Um, the image on the right there from uh, John Luca Massi again, when the comet was getting close to the earth, you can actually see the spiral jet structure. And <coughs> sorry. 
and he uh, determined a rotation period on the order of about seven and a half hours, just based on watching those spiral jets corkscrew. A lot of comets, when they get very close to the sun, around you know the 0.3 AU that Neowise got to, you start noticing that the comet is very yellow because it's basically sodium emission. You have these sodium D lines that some of our solar observers will recognize when they look at the sun. You'll actually see this on comets, and the comet will take on this very bright yellowish hue. And it was interesting in July as the comet moved away from the sun, watching the head of the comet over the course of a week change from nice brilliant yellow to the what we're more used to, that kind of blue-green, you know, the swan, the carbon swan band appearance of it. And also there's kind of a bifurcation you can see in those low, two lower left images. And these are both sketches where you almost see what they call the shadow of the nucleus, even though now I think it has more to, we think it's really because you're kind of looking at a cylinder of material and kind of just like a planetary nebula. It's when you're looking, you know, directly along the edges of that cylinder, you're looking through more of a volume density. So it seems to be brighter than down the middle where you're actually looking through, you know, less of a volume density. So next. I don't know if everyone's seeing it too, but at least on mine, it's gotten very pixelated. Oh, now it's snapped back into, so maybe that's just on my thing here. So when Neowise was at its best, and mind you, people weren't really seeing this visually. This was more of a photographic CCD thing. The tails were, I mean, the dust tail was extending about 10 degrees, and the ion tail went out to about 30 degrees. And it's great when you look at the picture over here on the right, where that's the Big Dipper basically extending the entire height of the image there, just to kind of give you an idea of exactly how long that tail was. I don't think I would call Neowise a great comet, um, just because it really, if I hadn't known Neowise was there and didn't have experience, I might not even have noticed that there was something there. Photographically, it sure looked like a great comet, but visually, I think it did fall short. Definitely, I mean, Again, born in 73, missed the great comets of the 60s and 70s. So my only great comet experience is Hale-Bopp and Yakutake. This was not Hale-Bopp or Yakutake. So next slide. And so one of the things we like to do, especially when we get magnitude observations, is plot up the light curve. And one thing you'll notice, especially if you look on the plot to the lower left, is one reason why this comet became as spectacular as it was because usually as comets get closer to the sun, their brightening trend decreases. This one stayed steady at a brightening trend that it was actually a little bit above average. And so every once in a while we get lucky and the comet doesn't disappoint. And as Neowise did, as McNaught did back in uh, 2006, the big bright comet from the Southern Hemisphere, it just continued brightening at its nice normal rate, which was great to see. And then after perihelion, it didn't fade off super fast, it faded off at a nice normal rate. Now, if you plot up the maximum brightness of Neowise at perihelion, you correct for its distance from the sun, you correct for its distance from the earth, you correct for any phase function effects because there was a little bit of forward scattering. If you're at high phase angles, the dust will preferentially scatter the light towards you or forward in your direction. So that makes the comet a little brighter. And many of the brightest comets throughout history may not have been the biggest comet or intrinsically brightest, they just happen to have a lot of forward scattering. Again, McNaught in 2006 being a perfect example. But when you plot up, and I did plot up the brightness of a whole bunch of long period comets, and Neowise is that kind of that big black dot there. 
But the comets that are nearby to it, Murkosh and Aaron Rollin, which were the two comets that kicked off the comet section back in 1957. And then the one that was actually closest to it is actually the last really good comet we had, which was Panstars back in 2011. So that was pretty interesting that it actually seemed to be almost a carbon copy of our last really good comet. And on the final slide, just looking forward to what's on deck. Um, most of the comets that are predicted to be bright over the next couple of years are short period comets. And that there's a reason for that. They've already been discovered. Most of the long period comets probably have not been discovered yet. Um, no one is expected to be super bright. There is this comet 2017 K2 pan stars, which might get up to fifth magnitude. That one was discovered way out, was observed almost out of 20 AU. 2024, we have a fourth magnitude Pons Brooks, which is a Halley type comet. Not a great return, but still could be fourth magnitude. But chances are the next bright, really spectacular comet just hasn't been seen yet. And questions? I see there's a few questions in there. Um, so Roger sent me one about these phenomena. So I think going back to the Osiris-Rex where you've got the meteoroid impacts on the surface. The cover of the next journal is gonna yep. feature one of Carl's images. Um, I'm sorry I'm late, I'm only a month late this time. <laughs> journal, uh, life gets in the way. But anyway, I uploaded the uh, files to our hard copy printer this morning and we'll hopefully have the uh, downloadable copy posted to our website or FTP site this weekend. But um, there's a great um, article by Carl in this issue, and uh, it's about Neowise. It's sort of what, a pre-apparition report or something? Uh, it's kind of like a, I call it a preliminary yeah. apparition report. So I haven't done the deep dive analysis. It's just, this is what we have, yeah. boom. Okay, if we can get something from you uh, for the spring issue, oh, yeah. so like twice a year we should have a, a really, this, and this is the very first comet apparition report we've ever had in a journal. We have well, in a while. Reports. Huh? In a while. There's been other ones. I saw and there was one, and then when Don Mockholtz was running the comet section back in the 90s, he was doing it. Okay, quickly. in the 90s before I was around. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. So there's, there's, were two questions, and I think they both go back to Osiris-Rex. One was from Roger about, you know, not seeing these kind of micrometeoroid impacts on the moon. And does that suggest a difference in the density of the population of meteors in the Bainu environment versus that of the moon? It actually doesn't. Um, in fact, Bainu's orbit goes from about 0.9 AU to 1.4 AU. So it's still roughly in the, uh, you know, the near, what we call near-Earth space. The difference being that when you're observing meteoroid impacts on the moon, you're seeing the thermal flash. That's how we see it. We're seeing, you know, for less than a second, few video freight rames, you see a flash of light. On Bennu, we weren't seeing that mostly because, you know, we're restricted by how much data we can take, how much data can be sent back. So we're not doing video rate observations. So we would never detect the flash. But I think what we're seeing is on the moon, you're seeing much larger bodies probably objects that are centimeters across, maybe even meters across hitting the surface versus on Bennu where you really are seeing micrometeoroids, objects that are millimeter or even smaller that are hitting and throwing the material off. So I really think we're, we're seeing the same population. It's just with Bennu being, and we're only a kilometer away from the asteroid, which is why you can see 
millimeter, centimeter size particles in orbit around it. We're seeing the very small part of that meteoroid population. And then Jerry asked the question that, you know, basically mentioned that defocusing is typically used to increase the photometric precision by minimizing the shot noise. And when I said that our detector, unfortunately, was in too fine a focus, that particular image, we had no focuser on it. So for OSIRIS-REx, we had to, we, you had, we wanted to minimize the moving parts. So we either had a filter wheel or a focuser. So one camera had a focuser, one camera, which unfortunately is the camera with the filters, only had a filter wheel. And most of our photometry was done with the filtered camera. So we couldn't change the focus. We tried by turning the heaters on and overheating the instrument, but you can imagine, yeah, exactly. You can imagine how fun that is looking at your data when you've now, you're cooking everything, the detector, the optics, to drive it out of focus. <laughs> we decided that probably wasn't the best thing to be doing, but we did try it. And I think that maybe, unless there's other questions. That's excellent, Carl. Thank you once again for a great presentation and our update on, uh, on OSIRIS-REx. Yep. It's very good. Thank you for all listening. Yeah. Well, that'll do it for this episode of Observer's Notebook Podcast. Again, I want to thank Carl Hergenrother for giving a great presentation at the 2020 Virtual Alpo Conference. And I want to remind you, the entire conference is available for viewing on our YouTube channel. So just search for Alpo uh, YouTube, uh, uh, Association of Lunar Planetary Observers on YouTube, and you will find the, um, the entire conference online and i'll also put a link in the show notes and also a reminder that carl's presentation is there as well we upload a new episode of the observer's notebook every few weeks usually on the first and 15th of every month you can subscribe to us on itunes if you do please rate and review us i do appreciate it you can also listen on apple radio iheart radio soundcloud spreaker google play stitcher and amazon echo you can support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon by giving up to $35 a month, where you will receive one year's membership to the Alpo and producer credits on the podcast. And with that, I really want to thank the producers of this podcast, Steve Seedentop and Michael Moyer, for their generous support to the Observer's Notebook. Thank you very much. The link for Patreon, as well as the link for the Alpo, is in the show notes. You can contact me via email at cometman at cometman.net or on Twitter at, at ObserversNPPod. Until next time, I hope that you always have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening, and please stay healthy, my friends. <laughs>